Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Mo Money podcast. I'm so freaking excited for my next guest because he's kind of a big deal. He's probably one of my biggest guests. No offense to all of my guests. You're all special in my heart. But uh, this guy, I've been reading his columns, his articles for years since I, even before I started my blog four years ago, I've probably been reading his articles, honestly, since high school. I'm I'm not going to lie. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the one and only Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail. Um, He is such a delight. He was such a delight to talk to. Um, So informative. He's always um, one of the keynote speakers at the Canadian Personal Finance Conference. And when I was there, I kind of just bombarded him. I'm like, please be on my podcast. And he was nice enough to say yes. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you. We talk about a lot of stuff, specifically millennial money issues, housing, which I'm pretty passionate passionate about and a whole other bunch of stuff. So get ready for one of my favorite podcast episodes ever, episode 33 with Rob Carrick. Thanks Rob for joining me on the program today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. No problem. Um, So since you are a financial expert and I've been reading you for years, by the way, I don't think you've known this, but um, (laughs) when I was just starting to get into um, personal finance and blogging, uh, the Globe and Mail in your spec- uh, section specifically was uh, kind of the only section of the newspaper that I read and kind of still, you're kind of the only uh, reason I go to the Globe and Mail. So Good. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad, glad you find something uh, to, to, to bring into the Globe. Absolutely. Um, so since uh, one of the things that you do besides uh, writing for the Globe is you also go to universities and teach financial literacy to post-secondary students, I thought we can kind of talk about, you know, millennial money matters Sure, glad to do it. Awesome. Um, so I guess what I'm kind of curious about, uh, especially since you uh, do talk to a lot of post-secondary students, what are some of the biggest, I guess, concerns that you're hearing from people that are you know, in university or about to graduate that are about to embark on their kind of outside of school lives? Well, it's interesting. You know, the ones who are still in university who are, I guess, first, second, third year, their biggest concern is budgeting and getting by from week to week and month to month. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are not sure how all the numbers are going to work, and so that so just basic basic financial survival is what they're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And the ones who um, are graduating are concerned about repaying their debt, and that's natural because six months after you graduate, um, you uh, will have to start repaying your loan. Although uh, if the liberals bring act on one of their promises, you will have, you will not have to start paying until you have a job paying at least $25,000. But mm. regardless, I think debt repayment becomes the number one concern in year four for sure. Mm-hmm. And do and you think that most students literally haven't thought about that while they're in school? It's only kind of when they're on the cusp of yeah. graduation? I think so, yeah. You know, I was uh, recently looked at an interesting study that um, – York University in Toronto students uh, were polled along with uh, about 18,000 U.S. students about their attitudes about debt. And one of the things that came through was a lot of the students in borrowing money didn't consult with anybody else. They just basically made it up on the fly how much they thought they needed and how much they were going to borrow. So that to me sort of highlights how 
there isn't a lot of thought going into taking on debt. Students know they don't have enough money to pay. They know they need to borrow, uh, but they're kind of making it up as they go along. And that's part and parcel of not really thinking too much about the repayment. It's all about just getting by in the here and now. Is that right? And and you find that most um, students will go to a student loan before even thinking about, hey, maybe I can get a scholarship or maybe there's a bursary or a grant or something like that out there. Well, yeah, I think I think they may do that. I think the availability of scholarships and bursaries a little bit over overblown you know sometimes it's sometimes made out to be that if you just go and look in the cupboard there'll be something for you (laughs) and i i I think that's probably raising expectations beyond what's really available i I certainly think bursaries and scholarships are worth checking out Mm -hmm. and um you know and they may be a piece of the puzzle about how you're going to afford things but i think a lot of kids are going to say, here's what I've got, here's what my parents got, here's what I can get in scholarships and bursaries, and I still need to borrow a chunk of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And another thing that I always kind of wonder, and, and it's because, you know, when I was in school, I kind of went the route where I did look for scholarships and bursaries first because my parents, you know, were a little bit um, savvy on that front. And uh, also I had to pay for my own school. So they're like, check that first before getting a loan. Um, and so I did, and I did uh, get a scholarship for my first year. So that helped me out a bit. But I also worked. Um, two years in high school and um, all throughout university. And I'm a lot of my friends in university, they didn't have a job. They said that they needed to focus more on, you know, doing well in their studies and they'll figure that out later. Do you find that yeah. that's kind of a trend with post-secondary students that they aren't, you know, thinking so much about, oh, I can earn while I go to school and that might help me with taking on less debt? Yeah, you know, I think, I think there's a real mix out there. Some students are working and probably working so much there, um, it's affecting their studies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not uh, convinced that's a great thing because you're taking on debt as an investment in your education. If you're not getting the most out of your education, it sort of calls into the question the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think some students just think I'm going to concentrate on school, I'm not going to work. Um, but I think if you do that, and that's legitimate as long as yeah. you're out there getting good marks and maxing out the value from school. But if you're going to do that, it puts a lot of onus on you to get a good summer job and work hard from basically May through the end of August. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. Um, so besides, I guess, student loan debt, which is definitely, I'm sure, a, a big topic with students, what other kind of things are they um, worried about, I guess? One of my, one of my concerns, because I, I didn't really have a huge student loan when I was graduating, but my biggest concern was how am I going to afford to live? I mean, I, I graduated with a film degree, an arts degree, so I didn't really, I didn't have that many options, you know, uh, probably less options than if I went and got like a marketing or a business degree. But I was more just concerned with, yeah, the, the budgeting, but also how am I ever going to afford some of those things that I think I'm supposed to have as an adult, like a house or investments, retirement, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think um, I think they're they're trying to figure out where they fit in the economy. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what it comes to. So yes, they're exactly looking at what, all the issues you just said, but they're also wondering how am I going to get a job, period? Mm -hmm. So it's like a two-stage process. One, I have to find employment, and two, then I have to start thinking about how I'm going to start affording the things I want. want, Basically, they want to get on with their lives. They want to travel. They want to start accumulating money for a house, maybe, or saving for retirement, or building an emergency fund, or, you know, moving out, Mm -hmm. uh, all that stuff. Um, But I, I think what I... I think what students have to do to get ready for this before you graduate, well before you graduate, mm-hmm. or maybe even before you even go to university, you have to be thinking about what am I studying and how am I going to make that interesting to employers? Mm-hmm. So it may mean that, um, may mean, 
you know, strategizing a bit about what you study and thinking, um, you know, what's in demand in the workforce today and how will I meet those, meet those requirements. So some students, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a trend for people who don't think hard about this sort of thing to think, okay, I'm going to graduate from this degree. Now I'm going to get this degree. Now I'm going to get this degree. And, you know, more, more courses and more education and more debt isn't the answer, mm-hmm. but I think you might want to strategically think about, uh, maybe a one-year college certificate on top of your undergrad degree, that might be a good investment to, to get you into the workforce. And then once you're in the workforce, you know, um, I don't think you have to like have it all figured out immediately. No. You know, you can, you can go get yourself a place, rent a place, see how your cash flow is, try to save a little bit. And you're entitled to live a little bit and not be financially responsible immediately after you're employed, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you brought up a, a really interesting point because, and I do find this is a bit of a trend with uh, us millennials. We grew up with our parents telling us, oh, you could do whatever you want. You could be whatever you want. And I believed it. I certainly believed it. That's why I got a film degree. And I have, you know, lots of friends that also got arts degrees, philosophy degrees, this and that, and graduated with like $50,000 in debt. And they really, and I'm myself included, I didn't really think about what I was going to do after university until it was my last year. And I'm like, oh crap, I I need to figure out how I'm going to move out of my parents' place and survive. Um, But yeah, it's it's just a a tricky thing. I, I wonder if it's just because we grew up having this you know, dream of, oh, we could be whatever we want. Um, yeah, I, th- we- I think the, uh, I think the, you can be whatever you want slash study your passion advice is really not very helpful. It isn't. In fact, I agree. And like you mentioned, I actually went to university, I got a degree, worked a few years, not necessarily in the field that I want to be in. And then I went back and got a, a certificate and that helped me kind of jumpstart my career. Yeah, I think I think that advice is that that's nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, maybe nineteen nineties for the new millennium. In the new millennium, you need to have skills that employers want. You can't just graduate with an interesting degree and someone will pick you up because they're always bringing new people into the company. Mm-hmm. You know, most companies want to hire people on very short term contracts now, and if you want to separate yourself from the from the pack, you're going to need to have you know, good solid credentials mm-hmm. that are in demand right now. And, uh, you know, I hate to say it because I'm a journalist and not really a numbers guy, but, you know, the math and computer science related fields, engineering, that sort of thing, give you a much better chance of good solid employment prospects immediately after school than some of the other stuff does. But that's not to say you shouldn't study the other stuff, but you just have to think, okay, how can I, how can I take this degree and make it into something that an employer is going to want? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's kind of what I've done. And that's what I think lots of people that I know have done. They, you know, went to school for something and then they kind of realized a bit later while working, you know, a random job, what they want to do. And then they figure out a way to, okay, how how can I make the skills that I have that may not be even related to my degree, but um, how can I make it interesting for, you know, the employer that I eventually want to work for? Yeah. You know, ideally high schools would be um, wising kids Mm -hmm. up like a great, uh, grades 11 and 12 saying you're going to be picking your courses for university. Let's review what professions are in demand, what the starting salaries are, what the employment and unemployment rates are like, Mm -hmm. you know, what the percentage of full-time jobs are versus contract jobs. And then you go back and think about what you're good at and what you want to study. And these statistics that we've just shown you, then you decide what you want to do. Give people more facts. And I, I think they also need to stop 
assuming that the ideal thing, what's really best for everybody is to go to college or university Mm -hmm. and start doing a better job of a playing up the benefits of, of uh, learning a trade and, also, um, the idea of starting your own business, being an entrepreneur. I agree with that. Yeah, actually. And it, it could be because I'm a blogger. And so I've got a lot of uh, blogger friends that are starting to either um, just do freelance full time or start their own businesses. But that wasn't ever anything I learned in school. I thought you had <laughs> to work for a company and you had to work up, you know, work up your way through the ladder. And that's just kind of always something that I believed in. And, you know, both my parents worked for companies as well. But now that I'm getting older, I'm like, huh, I that's actually kind of interesting. And I really hope that, um, you know, younger people will realize that they don't necessarily have to find a job at the company, but they can maybe create something that's great and their own business and make money that uh, way. You know, but I, I think that's a message that should be, um, should be uh, passed along to younger, but it's not really. And I think, um, I think that they'll either, you know, have this revelation about doing it uh, at some point or they will never get around to it. But mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, you know what? We have to live in the world that we live in, mm-hmm. and in that case, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people sort of, you know, graduating from school. And I think uh, one thing I'd like to uh, to tell them is that if it doesn't all happen for you right away, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's it's quite you know widely known that we're going to be living longer and longer <laughs> lifespans. And um, today's grads are probably going to live to be 95, 100 years old. Yeah, and um, you know, I was recently reading an interesting article saying that, um, you know, we currently look at long lifespans as basically you get to 65 and then someone says, okay, you got a bonus 30 years now. Um, but another way we could play that is to say, let's enjoy the extra time all through our lives. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we don't start working full time until our early 30s. Mm-hmm. And maybe we don't even peak at our jobs till our late 50s, even early 60s. We could buy a house in our late 30s, even around 40. We will retire around 75, but that won't be because because we're slaves, it'll be because we're enjoying what we do and we recognize we're going to live a long time and we don't want to spend 25 or 30 years basically doing nothing. We want to, we want to sort of stay a little active for part of that time. So anyway, I, I don't want young people to think that they're on this timetable and that if, if, that if they're not locked into a great income by age 25 or 27, that, uh, that life's over. You know what? You can afford to take your time and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, yeah, that's definitely something I've been feeling just as I, you know, I'm approaching my 30s now and I'm kind of realizing that the path that my parents went does not exist anymore. And that's just always the frame of reference I've had. And, yeah, that, and that's, that's true in quite a number of ways. It's true in terms of who you'll work for. It's true in terms of how, how younger people will save for retirement. The vast majority of them, it'll be entirely on them to save. There won't be any company pensions for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are uh, you know, home ownership. A lot of today's young people are never going to own homes unless there's a big, big pullback in house prices. Yeah, which I'm not sure is ever going to happen. And yeah, that's another. You know, it's it, If it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. then the natural reaction will be for, like, look at American mm-hmm. young people. A lot of them have completely opted out of the housing market. Now, their housing market crashed. Mm-hmm. And it was a long slog uh, for it to stabilize and start to move up again. So that soured a lot of people. A lot of, they also yeah. had a worse recession than us. Mm-hmm. So that soured people as well on home ownership. But there's there's a, quite a large you know percentage of young Americans who have no interest in owning a home. And Canadians though are, are much different. They all young Canadians all want to own homes, but 
um, they also all can see that they may never own them because mm-hmm. uh, how expensive they are and what their earning prospects are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, kind of I, I joke with some of my friends, I'm like I think the only way I'm going to own a home is if I buy land somewhere like up north Ontario and build my own tiny house. <laughs> yeah, but then you're going to think, but well, my tiny house isn't near my job. I know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to spend all my time commuting or else I'll have to have a job where I can work from home. Yeah. You know, the, the problem is, you know, you, you used to, the answer to the expensive housing used to be able to move to the suburbs, but who wants to live in the suburbs? I don't. A lot of young people don't. Yeah, so it's true. I, I think, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with renting, you know, no. I, there's a, an important message we could get across to young people. It's that you're not a failure if you're renting, you're making a smart economic decision in a very expensive housing market. Mm-hmm. And you can rent and be an aggressive saver and end up with just as much money as a homeowner. Exactly. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I was actually just having a conversation with a friend today and he lives in the suburbs. He still uh, lives at home with his parents, but I think he pays rent, but he's thinking of moving to the city. And I live in downtown Toronto for a couple of years, but me and my husband rent and we did look for a house and couldn't you know we just didn't see that it was a, a good investment you know what you made a smart economic decision there like we looked at a house and realized we couldn't afford it and yeah. we didn't buy yeah now people do that with cars and they do that with clothes and they do that with trips and they do that with electronics it's too expensive i can't buy it. but for some reason with houses they think i've got to somehow make it work and they get money yeah. from their parents and they go to alternative lenders who who aren't with the banks and they, they somehow they make it happen. I don't know why people think that they should, even if you can't afford a house, you should still find a way to get one. I know. And I, uh, I think it's just because, and, and when I was talking to my friend, he's like, no, seriously, if you crunch the numbers, say if you, you know, and he had this whole spiel and basically he was just trying to prove that it's still a better option than renting because you will make money down the road. I'm like, well, that's assuming that the economy is, you know, going to be this way and housing prices are going to continue to rise and all this stuff. And yeah, I, like, yeah, the reason we decided to opt out is just like my gut was saying you should never buy out of fear and that's what I was starting to feel like I felt like we were being pressured to buy something that I'm like we should we shouldn't just pick whatever house that is sort of affordable even though it's falling down but we'll worry about that later yeah I I, um I really wish more young people would would take that view you know what you know they're afraid of being left behind Mm -hmm. by the housing market but if the housing market leaves you behind there's something wrong with the housing market. exactly exactly yeah and we can't it doesn't the housing market won't continue to go up if more and more young people are priced right out you know there's not mm-hmm. enough rich foreign investors to buy up all the houses that are going to that are going to go on sale in the next 20 years as the baby boomers uh, decide you know what, I'm getting on in years and I don't want to live, keep up this house anymore. They put them on the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be a big imbalance coming. I, mm-hmm. I, I see it coming. And unless unless housing prices somehow move more into line with incomes, but that's going to take a lot of... Uh, a lot of jockeying for sure. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, you bring up a good point because yeah, lots of the people that I know that are my age and they want to buy houses, they're afraid that if they don't buy now, even though, you know, prices are so inflated and so expensive, they, if I don't buy now in five years, I definitely won't be able to afford it. I'm like, well, you can't afford it now though. And wouldn't it be yeah. nice to, you know, not yeah. have a house, not pay a ridiculous amount on your mortgage and maintenance fees and all that kind of stuff. And then save that money and invest it in a different way. And I think that's something that young people, they don't really think about. They always kind of think that housing is the best investment you can make, but there's other options to invest. Well, you know what? The housing is great message comes from their parents. Exactly. Who, you know, most, you know, for most people of 
you know, Gen X and baby boomers, you know, their biggest financial home run in their whole lives was buying a house and owning it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the easiest thing they ever did. And they made, you know, on paper, they've made tons and tons of money. And of course, they believe that is the the one true path to financial success in life. But um, you know what, uh, I, I've written columns on this, and it's pretty clear if you if you're a renter and you invest the savings you realize by not owning, and those are considerable savings, mm -hmm. you could end up with a investment portfolio of equal or greater value than the homeowner. And that's liquid money. Mm -hmm. The homeowner owns a block of property. It's not a cash machine. There are ways of getting cash out of your house, but there are, you know, usually you have to pay interest to do it. You know, the renter who invests has got an investment portfolio. You can do anything you want with it. It could be for retirement. It could be for a sabbatical year. It could be for traveling. Um, it's wide open. And I think if young people thought more about it, they'd find, I think a bunch of them would think, you know what, I'll go for the rental and investing option and enjoy the flexibility I get. Uh, well, exactly. And that's part of the reason we decided to rent too, is we really enjoyed having our flexible downtown lives. We work really close to work. We're able to travel. Um, you know, I was able to go back to school. I mean, without, um, if we had owned something, you know, say in Vancouver, um, we wouldn't have been able to sell it and afford to move to Toronto to, you know, try our luck in this city but because we were Absolutely. renting there we had the flexibility that we can quit our jobs and we you know we had some cash in the bank but otherwise we literally just started fresh in the city but we were able to do that because we had the cash in the bank and we wouldn't have been able to do that if we owned something in vancouver right and if you want to move to another city uh, for a job opportunity you're free to do it you have to give 30 days notice i mean in a, in a tough job market for young people um being mobile is a huge asset mm -hmm. and buying a house makes you immobile, exactly. um, you know, and the house has to go up a lot in value to offset the cost of buying it and then selling it again in a year or two. So mm -hmm. I, I, I uh, that, that's the same reason I'm not a big fan of starter condos, because if you buy one, live in it for a few years and sell it, you're probably going to end up poorer, even if the condo did appreciate a little in value. And, you know, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so one uh, thing I would like to talk about is uh, retirement savings. I've always been pretty conscious of it just because I think my parents kind of ingrained in my head how important it was just because, you know, they got married young, they started really poor and uh, they, you know, always said, you know, when you're our age or, or you know, in your 20s, your early 20s, make sure to start um, saving for retirement sooner rather than later, not like us. And, uh, and yeah, they honestly, their retirement savings is uh, a good portion is their house, which I know I won't be able to do myself. So, but I do find that a lot of people my age and I'm almost 30, you know, they haven't even started thinking they, they're just, you know, paying, you know, about to pay off their debt or they're still in the middle of it. But what can you say about, you know, millennials and retirement savings and what things they should? Really well, I think, think millennials are going to have to get on that pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I think if you haven't started until 30, no problem. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not over-dramatize yeah. this and say you have to start saving the second you start drawing an income. Yeah. No, you don't. And in fact, you know, uh, people don't save level amounts all through their lives for retirement. You know, a good to, I would say that you really early on, once you've got your student debt paid off, because I'm a big believer in just pounding yep. that down and clearing the decks and then moving on to the next mm -hmm. thing. Uh, once you got to that point, you're going to have to decide, do I want a house? If I want a house, you're probably going to have to put all your savings resources into building a down payment mm -hmm. and forget retirement. Just get the house and then um, you let you, you try to find a retirement savings room after you bought the house. And anyway, most people, if they put money in an RSP, end up taking the money out to buy the house through the home buyer's plan. Mm -hmm. But I think... Um, I think, you know, by age 30, you should have a, you should be committed to putting away 10% of your income, your gross income mm -hmm. 
for retirement uh, and uh, getting used to that, making it automatic and do yeah. that for 30 or 40 years and you will be all set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's starting early and committing to it and not making it discretionary, not doing that nonsense where you wait till RSP season and try to find the money. You, you contribute to your RSP or your TFSA, whatever you're using for retirement. Every time you get paid, you make it automatic and you, uh, you know, 30 years down the line, you will be amazed at how, how, how smart you feel for what you did. Mm-hmm. And well, I've been doing like those automatic withdrawals for every paycheck for, I guess, I don't know, since my first job five years ago. And I think the people, uh, the thing that people don't really realize is like, n- not only is it, you know, great, a great financial decision, but it takes the um, thought process out of it. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. And then you're like, exactly. oh, look, there's money in the bank. Yeah. And the more people are thinking about it, the more they're thinking of excuses not to do it. Yeah. So um, the automatic thing is great. And I, but like I say, you're going to come to a fork in the road, house or retirement. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're the renter who's going to be saving, um, you could sort of divide up all your savings money into, let's say, two-thirds goes for retirement and one-third goes for medium, short and medium-term goals in your life. Um, but retirement should, you know what, all millennials should be thinking about their plan, when they're going to start saving for retirement. It doesn't have to be over in a set year or a set point in life, but um, if you're not going to have a pension, it's all going to be on you. CPP and OAS are going to be just a piece of the puzzle, and you're going to need to have your own savings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, I think those are kind of everything I wanted to talk about. You're, oh, it, was, it was a pleasure talking to you, Rob. No problem. Glad to do it. I, this is, you know, <laughs> I, I find that the, you know, the millennial uh, predicament isn't something that the mainstream media seems to want to talk about much. So I feel it's sort of wide open to me. And I've got uh, two sons, one eight, one's 18 and one's 21. So it's an area of personal interest. Okay. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, millennials will read the Globe and Mail to, uh, to find out about personal finance aimed at them and not just, uh, you know, the older population. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Glad, glad to do it. And that was episode 33 of the Mo Money podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes at jessicamorehouse.com slash 33. Thank you again to Rob, if you're listening, for being an amazing guest. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And of course, if you loved what you heard, which why wouldn't you? It was a great episode. Please leave me an iTunes review or a review on Stitcher. I'd really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that's really all I got. So see you here next Wednesday, y'all. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.